every time someone gave me a glass of wine, I thought they were playing a trick on me or they were going to like laugh at me when I didn't pick the right taste profile or the right variety or the right year. Like I just thought someone I was going to get laughed out of the room if I didn't <laughs> couldn't tell a, a 2005, you know, Burgundy from a 2006. And I thought everybody knew more than they actually did. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. As we've discussed, the events of 2020 forced many to pivot and change their business models to survive. For many, it was an awakening, a chance to change their business in ways they never thought they had the time or the bravery to do. Others have opened businesses over the last 12 months, and the insights garnered during this time have allowed them to create hospitality models that are far more resilient. Max Walker is the owner of Paranormal Wines in Campbell in the ACT. Max, how are you going? I'm good, thanks, mate. How are you? I'm good. You're literally moments away from opening your very first uh, venue. How does that feel? Uh, it feels pretty weird. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I think, I don't know. It's, uh, I think it would be a surreal feeling for, you know, for anybody that's doing it, but to be doing it, um, uh, in this setting, it's still, I'm still getting, wrapping my head around it and processing it, but, um, no, it's really exciting. Very, very exciting. Well, you've worked in, um, uh, award-winning venues in Melbourne and Sydney, and you're now in the capital in Canberra. Um, Tell us, tell us, why did you come to Canberra in the first place? Um, well, uh, yeah, uh, my partner, Georgia, um, she, we met when I was living in Sydney and she is from Canberra. Um, so, yeah, we, we, after, you know, dating for a little while, we, you know, decided to visit Canberra. And I, the only other time I'd been to Canberra was um, when I was about 14 years old with my dad. Um, I'm originally from New Zealand um, and he's a, quite a prominent architect in New Zealand and mm. architects hate planned cities so we remember driving, <laughs> driving through Canberra and he was just ragging on it the whole time about how there's there's too many too many roundabouts and too much space and it's not organic because it's all planned and it's one one man's vision and it shouldn't be you know it shouldn't city shouldn't be like this you know um mm. and then obviously yeah um moving to so I moved to Australia when I was about 22 moved to Melbourne and then subsequently lived in Sydney as well and everybody just yeah they just rag on Canberra so uh, it's, 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 uh, and it's not really fair, really. Um, and so, anyway, I, I um, obviously um, started dating someone that was from Canberra, and then visited um, visited the city. And yeah, you know, when you kind of go somewhere with someone who knows where the cool stuff is and what you know the right thing to do is, mm. um, you see it through you know a completely different lens. Um, also, you know, I was lucky enough to have a, a good friend of mine, Nick Smith, um, open a bar. Um, called Bar Rockford, um, and then yeah. had heard, heard a lot about that, and really wanted to visit. And then, um, yeah, me and Georgia visited, and we walked upstairs, <laughs> uh, up into this amazing bar. And I was like, "Fuck, this is you know, this is awesome. This is not even like a great bar in Canberra. This is a great bar like Australia, you know, Australian standard." Um, and uh, then from there, we just kind of discovered all sorts of like you know, great markets, other great venues, amazing parks. Um, and then, yeah, just kind of gradually thought maybe we should just move here, you know, <laughs> maybe well, let's, let's, make, let's turn the holiday into, into, into our lives, really. So, yeah. Well, the food scene has really changed quite a lot in the last five to ten years in Canberra. It's quite extraordinary. And as you say, there's some venues that could hold their own in some of the best cities in the world. Yeah. And Paranormal Wines is something a bit different 
not just for Canberra, but for, for Sydney or Melbourne as well. Can you tell us the, the idea behind Paranormal Wines? Yeah, so um, Paranormal Wines, um, I'll give you the spiel, is a, uh, is a uh, sort of, I guess, a, um, a natural wine-focused bottle shop um, that um, I guess the unique aspect about it is that we do offer a drink-in option for a small corkage. Mm. Um, so essentially we're um, a bottle shop and a bar. Um, so it's more of like, um, it's not really an original idea. It's a very kind of European model. I mean, it was kind of inspired through a couple of years ago, Georgia and I went to um, London and Paris and going to places like P. Franco and um, the uh, Le Cave de Septime in, in um, Paris and just these amazing kind of little bottle shops that were kind of just more than bottle shops, you know. They were kind of a space to kind of, you could have a little snack, you could kind of chat, um, you know, you could take away stuff, you could have in. Um, and it was just a really different um, setting to, like, appreciate all these kind of amazing, um, kind of interesting wines that I'd never seen before or seen photos of and I'd never been able to get my hands on in Australia uh, and just be, be served by someone, you know, wearing a T-shirt, you know, who's very mm. kind of like um, – yeah, just in a really relaxed, casual setting and it just kind of stripping all the pretense away um, was something that I really just really stuck with me and resonated. And so, yeah, that's, I guess, how the idea was born. Did did the concept change at all given uh, the events of 2020 with the pandemic and the impact that it had on the hospitality sector? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the concept was born in the, in the pandemic. I guess the roots of it, the seeds of it were planted um, on those during those trips to to their trip to Europe, but um, yeah, this is definitely a COVID <laughs> COVID business. Um, <laughs> I um, so I was um, yeah lucky enough to be working at Bar Rockford at the start of the year. Um, Georgia had started her her job. Um, we moved in December, and, and I started working. So she started working in December, and I started working in January. Um, and was yeah just loving it, and just you know I was um, getting to sell some really cool wine. Um, working with some really great people, really, really lovely team there and just serving, you know, getting to meet a lot of the Canberra hospitality community working there because it's kind of like a, you know, it's a kind of uh, unofficial knockoff spot for hospo there and, and mm. lots of interesting people. Um, it's a bit of a hub. So, yeah, got to meet some really great uh, other kind of interesting operators and, and staff that worked at different venues and was just having a great time. Um, just, yeah, really enjoying myself. And then uh, obviously COVID hit and um, – as a you know, as a, a casual employee that hadn't been working for the company for very long, um, and also being a New Zealand citizen, um, I wasn't uh, eligible for any benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was pretty hard. That was, but you know, we were lucky enough to uh, be in a position where we, you know, we live in a nice house in Ainsley, and we and Georgia has a pretty um, stable job that didn't get too affected by COVID. Um, so yeah, it was just. Um, yeah, I guess born out of me, like, okay, you know, bit of a, you know, as, as everybody, uh, a lot of people that have been on this podcast, those going through those moments of like, you know, me sitting at home with no job thinking, ah, restaurants ever going to be a thing anymore? Like, are people, <laughs> people going to like have the money to go to restaurants and spend $100 on a bottle of wine and a $50 on a steak? Like, I don't know if they are. Maybe this is, you know, you know, the apocalypse mode sets in and you're like, you don't know, you know, there's just so much uncertainty and, um, you know, with the, obviously hospitality being hit harder than most industries because of, you know, all the hygiene stuff and, and uh, yeah. you know, it's seen as a – it definitely is seen as a kind of a, a luxury by a lot of people. And I didn't know whether, you know, it was going to be a luxury that people then decided they couldn't afford to 
can afford to spend money on anymore. So what's what's all this? You know, I've been working in restaurants for 15 years and learning how to carry three plates and knowing what to, what Chardonnay to match with people's roast chicken. And maybe that's, <laughs> that's that's not important anymore. You know, nobody cares. It's not you know, it's not life. It's not uh, it's not saving lives. So yeah, I was a bit bit, a bit in the wilderness a little bit. What, what, what did it feel like being, you know, from New Zealand and living in Australia? And we're kind of like um, pretty close mates, even though we're different countries, to be sort of left out of the government's equation in regards to support. Um, How do you feel about that? Um, look, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pretty pragmatic about these things. And it's like I everybody's in a different position. I was lucky enough to be in a position where um, – I wasn't out. I wasn't out on the street. Um, I was, you know, had a partner with a with a with a with a um, stable job. Um, so I was very very much luckier than most. Um, you know, the, the 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 sad thing about COVID is it's really affected people mainly closer to the poverty line than um, than yeah. myself. So um, I felt, you know, like I don't, you know, like I'm just grateful to have the roof over my head. Really, like. The, the government, I mean, I have been, you know, a resident here for 12 years and paid all the taxes and, you know, done everything by the book and then to not be eligible for things, that's, you know, that's annoying. But, you know, for me it wasn't um, – I was more sort of, you know, concerned by what's happening to other people that were in a worse situation than me, like, you know, yeah. Well, you um, – one of the leading songs in Australia in regards to – taking the intimidation out of the wine experience, you're really forward thinking in regards to just celebrating the drink that it is in casual environment and paranormal wines is very much about that. How did it all start for you, hospitality? Um, so I was, so yeah, I grew up in Wellington um, and in New Zealand and I was, yep, yeah, um, lucky enough to, as a, as a child, spend a bit of time in, um, in Europe. My, um, I had an auntie and uncle and cousins that lived in a small town in the in the northern uh, northern part of Italy in the near the Slovenian border, and we got to travel there a couple of times. And yeah, we just I don't know, food was always part of my life. Like my mum mm. was a really mum was a really good cook. Um, Dad just loves. He's just like the biggest um, fan of restaurants in the world. He's just like <laughs> kind of uh, yeah. He's a, a you know, here's the man about town in, in Wellington CBD. Like everybody, <laughs> for many, many years, I was uh, known as Roger Walker's son uh, <laughs> uh, just because he, you know, was just the uh, – he would um, frequent all the local ha- haunts and uh, latest restaurants, and he was a real champion of, um, yeah, get, taking me out to restaurants um, from a very young age. Um, you know, I remember trying sushi when I was like eight years old and, and you know, and all these things that – um, you know, I was, I was, I was very exposed to a lot of, um, really amazing cuisine. Um, and it was always seen as a really kind of important thing within my family. Mm. Like, um, and I guess, yeah, so I started, um, so yeah, one of, he was a regular at a, at a restaurant called Cafe Brava, which is now, um, something else, but that was at the bottom of Courtney place in Wellington's kind of CBD. And, um, a guy called Christian McCabe was working there mm. and then Christian and his business partner, Sam Chapman and then Leon, uh, they ended up buying, uh, an old Swiss, uh, cafe called the Matterhorn on Cuba street. And, redid that into a into a kind of a bar and then to more into a restaurant and um yeah christian also um went to because wellington's a tiny place he also went to um 
primary school with my um, with my stepbrother. So we kind of went in when I was, you know, probably just on 18 and had a couple of beers and maybe a mojito and thought, wow, this is pretty cool. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, eventually uh, got a job. They, um, Christian was looking for like a – uh, my, uh, I think my technical title was stock boy. Um, <laughs> so just essentially a lackey to um, Matterhorn was kind of as, as you know, clever a businessman as Christian um, is. Uh, was kind of ill-advised that the seller was actually upstairs. So every delivery I had to, you know, every box of wine, every um, carton of soft drink I had to ferry upstairs. So I got pretty, oh, wow. pretty fit um, and uh, split a few split, split a few jeans, tried to wear cool, cool tight, <laughs> tight jeans to, you know, to work. As the, as the fashion was, you know, everybody wanted to dress like a member of the Strokes back then, and uh, yeah, just split, split a couple of pairs of jeans, uh, carrying boxes. So I learned to, you know, wear uh, loose-fitting clothing. Um, yeah, and then essentially my job was to kind of organise the cellar, um, check off all the deliveries. Um, they had a really big wine list, so it was just kind of categorising all that sort of stuff, uh, and then just doing the prep. So Matterhorn was kind of probably one of the, the busiest bars in town. Um, also over the filming of like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the, all the like Elijah Wood and all those guys would come and hang out. It was a bit of a wow. crazy, crazy hotspot. So, um, yeah, I was just, one of my jobs was, um, prepping for the bar. So I used to make like buckets of Bloody Mary mix. So I used to count 30 punnets of limes a day, pick, <laughs> pick, pick 15 punnets of mint because everybody was fucking drinking mojitos, um, <laughs> and making, making heaps of sugar syrup. And, um, yeah, so I just kind of worked during the day, and then when the bartenders came in, everything was kind of ready to go. And now, having been a bartender now, that was pretty fucking. It's <laughs> pretty lucky bartenders having some some eighteen year old doing all your prep for you, you know. Like, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that was my first uh, first job. And then um, uh, Christian and yeah, um, Sam opened a, another venue next door to the, the Matterhorn called Mighty Mighty. Um, which is more like a Berlin-style uh, kind of loose nightclub um, bar, um, which was really fun, and that was a gig venue. And then I ended up, um, you know, working behind the bar there uh, and um, playing in a band that we, we used to play there quite often, and it was a good little wow. kind of – yeah, it was a good little hub, um, that little – yeah, just that little Cuba Street precinct. And, um, yeah, got to got to meet a lot of good, um, you know, Wellington locals and um, – Ended up, you know, meeting a couple of guys that I would end up working with um, quite closely in the future. Um, so, yeah, that no, was a good time to be in hospitality. Exciting. And in, in, um, in Wellington, you know, having someone like Dave Verhall, who now has gone on to um, do the town mouse in Embler and Melbourne, like he, yeah. when, when he started as head chef, everybody's very excited. And suddenly all this different kind of food was coming out and all these Wellingtonians had to decide, had to, you know, had to deal with share plates. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like everybody, everybody hated it. They're like, "Where's the, you know, where's the, where's the protein and two veg? Like, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean? It's just, what do you mean? It's just a pork chop, you know? Where's the, where's the veg? You know, um, just those, those conversations going on and on and on. Um, but um, yeah, no, it was a really exciting time to be in Wellington for sure. Well, speaking of shared plates, uh, you worked at a venue in Melbourne that was really part of the revolution of shared plates in Australia with with the Mavita Group. What, what was it like working with Frank? Um, it was great. Yeah, yeah. Really, really um, amazing group. I was there for six years, so I kind of hated it that much. <laughs> um, but it was uh, – yeah, that's really kind of where I, I was never like – that was where I learned um, the most about hospitality, really. Like at the Matterhorn of Mighty Mighty, I was, you know, pouring beers and, um, you know, making making the odd drink and learning how to serve people. And But, you know, like I wasn't – they weren't – they're definitely um, – you know, the Matterhorn was a restaurant, but I wasn't – I was the kind of behind the scenes – guy there um so yeah learning how to be a proper bartender at a one-hat restaurant um and learning 
all the Spanish words <laughs> for food and all the like the, all the different sizes of the dishes. I remember that that really made my head spin. Like tapas clásicas and raciones and like all the different sections and and like um, yeah, it was a real um, a real wake up call um, and a real kind of. Um, yeah, I had to absorb a lot of information very fast, um, and then, but it was just yeah, super exciting. Um, I was I was working at Movida Aki um, the whole time, which is a big like over two hundred seat restaurant mm. in the middle of Melbourne. So Wellington's you know relatively com- cosmopolitan, but then to be suddenly working in a giant, um, <laughs> well known Spanish restaurant um, on Little Burke Street, um, full of yeah, <laughs> full of hundreds and hundreds of Australians, particularly, um, was quite daunting. Um, yeah, I learned to um, yeah really uh, twang up the the Aussie accent um, <laughs> and try and try and try and stifle the New Zealand mumble because you know when you're <laughs> dealing with like what you know white collar lawyers and bankers that um, yeah you don't really have time to repeat things and they want their they want their drink straight away or they want to you know order the order their order their shirt and get back to their conversation with their clients so um, yeah no it was a great great learning experience and yeah obviously some amazing chefs like not just frank but like um working with like people like you and crawford um was just an amazing um incredible chef and and people like um uh scott williams who's gone on to do um go on to really great things um in sydney with like ragazzi and fabrica and and mm. um uh other chefs yeah just too many to mention it was a really exciting kitchen for um yeah they just had all the gadgets all the best produce um all the coolest like you know you know, tasting like Iberico Hamon for the first time and um, and working with all this amazing seafood. Yeah, I was very, very lucky to be there. When did wine become a part of your conversation and really important key to your career? Um, it was actually, yeah, it was later on. I was always, I've been a bartender. Um, I was a bartender first and foremost. Um, and uh, look, I was, you know, I was really into, I was, you know, got into beer, got into craft beer when that sort of, um, retook off, I guess. Um, and, uh, well, that was probably still back in New Zealand. Um, and yeah, wine was always something that I found uh, always put in the too hard basket, like it's too, <laughs> too, too tricky, too curly, too many, too many variables, too many foreign words. There's yeah, too many grape varieties, don't understand. And I was just really, um, really terrified of wine. Like as, as a lot of people are, you know, like I was worried that, you know, we Matterhorn had a huge wine list and, um, but I remember one one moment, a couple of moments actually. Um, growing up in New Zealand, I wasn't that <laughs> enamoured with New Zealand wine, like you know, Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc and um, Central Otago Pinot um, weren't my favourite things, and they were the things that you know we were really known for. And so I was like, okay, yeah, I'm not really into that thing. I'm, I'd rather drink a hoppy a hoppy IPA from mm. from California than drink a drink a kind of cat's pussy grassy Sauvignon Blanc <laughs> but I remember I remember one day Christian like poured me a glass of wine and I was like I tasted it and it just tasted like so incredible like there was no it wasn't tropical it wasn't like super acidic um it just tasted like really energetic and lively and really beautiful and I was like I was like what was that and he was like that was a Sauvignon Blanc and I was like no it wasn't and he's like yeah yeah it was and I'm like no, it wasn't. It was like, you, you know, <laughs> every time someone gave me a glass of wine, I thought they were playing a trick on me or they were going to like laugh at me when I didn't, you know, pick the right, pick the right taste profile or the right variety or the right year. Like I just thought someone, I was going to get laughed out of the room if I didn't, <laughs> couldn't tell a, a 2005, um, you know, Burgundy from a 2006. Um, and I thought everybody knew more than they actually did. Um, but I never, this, this, I just thought he was pranking me. I was just like, that's not a Sauvignon Blanc. He's like, yeah, that's a Sancerre. That's a, that's a wine from the Loire Valley. 
in France, which is kind of known as the home of Sauvignon Blanc. He's yeah. like, that's, that's what Sauvignon Blanc should taste like. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and then he, did, then he did the same thing with Burgundy, with Pinot. He did the same thing with like Chardonnay, with Chablis. And I was like, holy shit, this is actually, this stuff's really delicious. And, um, but then, yeah, I kind of didn't really, um, I was still, you know, in my kind of beer and cocktail world, learned a little bit about spirits and then obviously working at Movita, um, it was really great. Um, yeah, I guess the gateway was really was like sherry and um, a lot of us were also um, getting into like sour beers from Belgium and um, stuff like that. And then, you know, sherry has all those kind of weird um, kind of tertiary notes that are non, non-food related. So you get those really kind of, um, yeah, really kind of oxidized, strange, salty, um, mm. or just not, not so much not food, but things that are like when you get like savory elements in, in wine and, and not things that don't taste like fruit. When you start getting things like taste like vegetables and proteins and dairy and stuff like that, I just found that really like exciting. Um, here's a thing, here's a thing that's made with fruit that tastes like, you know, salt water with, I don't know, Aspar- freshly shaved asparagus in it or something yeah. um and then i guess yeah then there was all these wines that we weren't allowed to sell to there was i remember there was a, a bottle of tom shawbrook's giallo um which was made with Sauvignon blanc back then and um and uh the som uh locky was like okay so this wine here the weird one with the with the the cloudy one with the with the paper label he's like do not sell that to someone that orders a Sauvignon blanc <laughs> do not do it under no circumstances sell that to someone that asks for a Sauvignon Blanc they will spit it back in your face so I was like wow what's what's this all about this kind of natural wine thing and then there was like yeah we'd have these you know we were pouring wines by um you know we'd special a wine by someone like Pat Sullivan like a Pinot and then you know the, the suits would send it back and I was like that's cool <laughs> why why don't why don't they like that that's that's kind of really intriguing to me and um uh, you know it was whether it was a bit too it was a little bit spritzy it was too earthy um it was too high acid it wasn't didn't fit their you know their little um idea of what a Pinot Noir should taste like so they yeah they didn't understand it so they threw it back in our faces so yeah and then I kind of we had this, um, me and um, you and the chefs and, um, yeah, people like Scott and uh, another friend, friend of mine, Kane Volcon, who's um, uh, another chef at Movita. He, um, we had to start this thing called Beer Club because we were only allowed to, on, it was on Saturday. So Sundays, the restaurant was closed. So everybody could, you know, afford to have a couple of drinks on a, on a Saturday night because nobody had to work the next day. And then we, we were only allowed Maritz Lager, which is a lager from Barcelona, mm. Um, as our knockoff, that was the, the company-wide policy, and we just got, you know, after many, many years of merits for knockoffs, you just, you know, fucking can't stand it. You know, it's just like <laughs> it's tasted so gross. I'm like my palate is scarred with merits. I mean, now nowadays, like I tried having one like about a year ago, and it's still like, you know, was a bit bit too triggering, and I wasn't ready, <laughs> wasn't ready for another merits. But um, and I'm sure a lot of my Vita uh, employ- employees feel that way. Um, but um, yeah, so we started this thing. Was like, okay, let's all bring like an interesting beer to drink instead of Maritz after work and we'll everybody did like a little bit of research um and we had to talk about it and then yeah beer club turned into like cider club turned into pet net club turned into wine club it was just like kind of wow those the natural progression of like those those flavor profiles those weird yeasty oxidized strange things that we found and like that everybody enjoyed in sherry then enjoyed in cider we could then taste them in like naturally sparkling wine and then into skin contact wines and yeah that was that was really the story we just all got into really funky stuff <laughs> well that extraordinary journey that you went on with wine 
uh, led you to leave Melbourne and move to Sydney, and you ended up uh, being the GM with LP's Quality Meats and Bella Bruta and part of the opening of Bella Bruta. What was it like working in those venues and creating your own wine list? Um, yeah, it was amazing. Like Working at LP's was like, I don't know, my favourite hospitality experience. Like Those guys are just so wonderful. Like Luke and Tanya are just like the most amazing operators and just really great humans. And um, yeah, they gave me some really amazing opportunities to sort of work work with wine and kind of learn, um, yeah, learn the ropes, learn on the job, um, you know, uh, writing, you know, it's one thing buying wine for your mates at a dinner party, you know, that, mm. you know, to, to go with some, you know, go with like pulled pork tacos or, or whatever you're cooking, but, and you can bring the craziest thing and, you know, everybody will probably like it, but it's a very, very different thing when you've actually got a list wine for a business, you know, you can't just, you know, put cool stuff on that you'd like to drink. Like it's not really about you. You've got to kind of take your ego out of it and be like, what is the, what does the business need? What is the rest? What is what is the menu? What's the food? What the focus of LPs is not the wine list. The focus focus is Luke's amazing food and like house made charcuterie and and you know things coming out of the smoker back then and and what works best with that. And it wasn't necessarily my favourite wines. So, mm. but then I was then exposed to all these other. My palate kind of changed and I you know developed. Uh, more of an appreciation for, you know, things like Italian varieties like Sangiovese and Nebbiolo and, and South American things like Malbec and, and uh, yeah, there's things that went better with the meat and worked, worked better with the menu. And, and, you know, there's obviously a few little kooky things that I was, you know, really wanted to be on there. But um, generally speaking, yeah, it was kind of like this is, you know, this is not about me. This is about what, what's good for the restaurant, what's good for the, the business. Um, so, yeah, that was a, a really interesting kind of a, gr- a really great learning experience. Well, you've always taken the intimidation out of that wine experience. Can can you tell us what makes a great wine experience in a restaurant? Um, I think it, I think um, for me, I've had um, lots of really great wine experiences and lots of not so good ones. And I think the main thing is you just got to find the right wine for the right person. Like it's not about you know pushing. You know, it is about with the right person. It is the right customer who's receptive to you know trying new things. Mm. Um, you yeah you just kind of got to read read the room read the customer right like you know um and then find the the wine that they're that they're ready for or they're that they want you know like it's not um you know if people if you know if people don't like orange wine that's totally fine like if people don't like you know um pet nat or um lambrusco or, or things like that that things that you know i have now you know grown accustomed to really liking it's like that's totally fine like it's not about me it's about what is good for the customer? What are they eating? Um, and, you know, like for someone, but I think it also is really important to, um, you know, the same way as you eat at a restaurant, you eat things that you normally wouldn't cook at home or you haven't had before or different combinations. And I think it's it's important for, yeah, for wine experiences to be, if, if it's, you know, the customer's receptive to it, to, to open them up to new varieties, new areas, um, you know, things like, showing people that, you know, here's a wine that's grown in Queensland. Here's, you know, mm. here's a wine from Slovenia. Here's a wine from, um, you know, the Canary Islands. Like getting people excited about things that are not just, you know, Barossa Shiraz and, um, and you know, Clare Valley Riesling, um, things that are, you know, a bit more left of centre, I think, um, but also not kind of oversaturating them and, and you know, confusing them with, um, you know, wines are a bit too avant-garde for, where, where they are in their, I guess, in their journey. 
the focus at Paranormal Wines is on minimal intervention wine. Can you tell us a bit about that and and what you love about them? Um, I don't know. Uh, I just think that, you know, wine um, has just become like one of the most important things in my life now. And it's just because, I don't know, it's just crazy that all these things can come from one one plant, you know, Venus vinifera, like all the, every single, um, you know, they've all got, it's all from the same um, the same plant, but all the different things that can be done with just one ingredient really, like, you know, making cocktails is amazing, but, you know, you need to like, maybe you put five or six things together and um, come up with this amazing kind of intricate layered, um, you know, thought-provoking thing, whereas you can have that same experience and for me, you know, nowadays I find a more um, profound experience by just opening up a bottle and, and just tasting one thing, you know, one element. It's just Cabernet Franc or it's just um, it's just Chardonnay, you know. that's I think that's really magical and, and the way that people can do all the things that they can do, you know. They can age things in oak. They can leave things on skins. They can, you know, they can uh, add must to re-ferment things. They can, you know, there's no – there are rules in winemaking, but there's kind of no rules in natural winemaking um, to a certain extent. Um, yeah, it's just a really um, profoundly, I don't know, exciting thing. And it's like, you know, it's all, um, you know, as, as, as you know, you know, natural as these wines are, that's, it's, you know, it's the winemakers that are real kind of heroes. Like they take, you know, a raw ingredient and turn it into something that, you know, you know, I'll drink something. I, I mean, I've drunk something, you know, as most people that are into wine. You know, I could tell you a bottle of wine that I had three years ago that just, like, completely mm. spun me out or, you know, had a really profound emotional, you know, a reaction. Um, and you always, you know, it's like great meals, you know. You remember where you were. remember what the weather was like. You remember who you were with. Um, you know, they, you have those real moments. And it's the same with me with food as well. I, I love, you know, food as much as I love wine. And you have those those moments that really like encapsulate, you know, whether it's like, you know, a steak a poivre in a bistro in, in Paris, um, drinking a bottle of Hervé's white Gamay from the Northern Rhone, or if it's like, you know, down at the lake, um, like Burley Griffin eating fish and chips, drinking a Ben's Boke, you know, it's like they, they really capture, I don't know, in me, they capture kind of a moment and a real kind of emotional reaction. So, yeah. I think one of the real interesting things is you worked with a local wine maker to produce the house wine. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so um, Sam Lation, uh, who makes Malaluka wines out in Yes, um, he's become a really good friend of mine um, over the years. We used to sell um, a lot of his wine at the at um, LPs, and particularly at, at Bella Bruta, the pizza shop. And um, yeah, just got to he was like you know at that stage didn't have representation, so he used to you know like. Um, he wasn't, didn't have a distributor. So he used to, you know, chuck, you know, he'd like, you know, cure you things at the last minute. He would like bend over backwards to get you a wine on time. Like if you sold out of something, he would like, you know, I think, I think one time he even like just jumped in a car and drove from Canberra to Sydney <laughs> to just drop off all this wine. It's just amazing. Um, and his religion, he, you know, um, we had lots in common. Like, um, he, uh, yeah, used to play in a band, loves music. Loves um, loves kind of interesting wine, um, and yeah, I just really liked his wine, and then met him, and then we just got on really well, and then we just kind of um, yeah started chatting, and once we moved to Canberra, and I got to go go out before COVID and help him make a wine, which was totally amazing. Um, but yeah, the house wine. Um, so last year uh, in Canberra uh, with the bushfires, like nobody nobody could make any wine, like all the mm. fruit was smoke tainted and fucked. So 
people like Brian Martin from Ravensworth, you know, he had to get wine from, you know, he got grapes from Western Australia. He got grapes from, you know, wow. the Riverlands, you know. He set up all these amazing, like, called in all the favours and um, and ended up, you know, trying to, you know, because they had to salvage something, you know, the whole year. That's like their whole, you know, one harvest is their, you know, their year's um, mm. earnings, you know. And um, and Sam, you know, did, did something similar. He worked um, with, um, he ended up getting some, Really great quality grapes from the King Valley in um, in Victoria. Um, one of which he made into an Alagotte, and the other one, which was a Gamay, um, which he ended up making a rosé out of, which um, ended up being the Paranormal Rosé. So um, yeah, we're very lucky to be um, yeah selling exclusively um, through the shop, and um, yeah, we, we're in talks with um, some other winemakers about doing project wines in the future. So yeah, that's that's pretty exciting. So you've created this um, business, which is part bottle shop and also wine bar. You can enjoy the experience. What what, what would be a typical experience at Paranormal Wines? Um, I would like to think it would be, um, yeah, somebody would come in. Uh, we're not going to take any bookings. Um, yeah, this whole uh, Paranormal Wines business model was to try and make it kind of as far away from a restaurant as possible um, to kind of really strip it back into being like just about the wine I mean, you know, we didn't have much money to do the fit out, so the fit out's pretty minimal. It's just like bunny shelves with a lot of wine on them. Um, uh, but yeah, the experience I would like to think was, yeah, somebody comes in and, and uh, you know, we. the great thing about um, the ACT with liquor licensing is you can kind of have um, on and off premise in the same room, um, mm. which you can't do in New South Wales. That's why all pubs have like off licenses, which you have to have a separate entrance and a separate um separate room you can't just be sitting at a sitting in a bar and then be enjoying a glass of wine and be given a bottle over the um over the bar to take home mm. you have to go into a separate room um which is you know you don't have to do that in europe that's for sure so yeah we're, we're really lucky with the licensing in canberra that we can people can come in and buy a bottle but they can also taste um we're going to do about six or seven things by the glass so people that are which producer which is a really great gateway point um to in- introduce people to things like orange wine and pet nats and and, you know, reds that are quite light, so we chill them down. Um, and so people can kind of try before they buy. And so because the last thing I want is someone to, you know, be pushed into buying a $50 bottle of wine that they take home and they open and mm. they they think's gross and they don't understand it. And they're like, well, I hate natural wine now and I'm not going back to paranormal wines because, <laughs> you know. And it's just like, again, it just comes back to like getting giving the giving the customer like the right wine um, for the right setting and, and um yeah, like there's wines that, um, you know, that I, I don't expect everybody to like everything. But, um, yeah, that, that's really great that we can we can actually serve in and then I can have a bit of a dialogue about about the wine with them and, the you know, the, um, the producer or the variety or the area. Um, and, you know, it's, I kind of like to think of it and I would like to think of it as like kind of like a record shop, right? So I, you know, learning about music, I learned a lot about, about music through uh, my older stepbrother Sam and his friend, um, Jeremy that owns a record shop um, called Slowback Records on Cuba Street in Wellington and I was like be listening to like I don't know Blur or or Radiohead or something like that and I'd be I'd walk in as a like a you know 16 year old and Jeremy or Sam would be like what are you what are you listening to at the moment and I'd be like oh blah 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 a certain record and they would like give me like five records that were like really seminal versions of like oh you like the strokes here's the velvet underground or the stooges or here's you know like here are mm. all the influences here here's all the kind of here are these amazing little 
offshoots and here's a side project by this, this, this person and la, 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 la. And, and, and I like to, and I just got my horizons like broadened really quickly in a really amazing way. And I'd like to think that if I can capture some of that with wine at the shop, I'll be, I'll be very happy that that idea that, you know, people come in and they say, Oh, you know, I like, um, you know, I like Ravensworth wine. And then I get to then, you know, point them in the direction of say, some really great Chianti's or some, you know, more interesting, some sort of, uh, you know, wines that are influenced, um, that are influences on Brian and, and, you know, and that learning, learning in that kind of, in that way, that's kind of, um, kind of expansive and, and, um, yeah, hopefully like fun. And, and the main thing with the venue, I just don't want it to be pretentious. I think just wine is just so, so fucking pretentious. I just want it to be, <laughs> I want it to be, fun. I want it to be fun and not scary. You know, I don't want to be, you know, I just thinking back to my 18 year old self being terrified of not knowing whether a word on the label was the area or the grape or the producer or the, or the DOC or the, you know, or the appellation. Um, yeah, I just want to kind of try and strip that back as best I can. Well, you do a great job of that. And I think you're really going to broaden the horizons of many people in the capital. And as a resident, I'm pretty stoked that you're opening uh, Paranormal Wines. Um, Max, it's been great to hear your story. Good luck with the venue. Um, Thanks very much, Max. Please keep in touch and uh, we'll talk again soon. Awesome. Thanks very much, Huck. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospital community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.